Hello and welcome episode number 75 of the Metrospective. Pete McCarthy along with Tim Britton. It is our uh, you know, 75th episode. Tim, only one Met has worn that number and we didn't do this at the end of last episode because we had David Wright on the show, which was a lot of fun and certainly go back and check that out. But only one Met has worn number 75, Francisco Rodriguez. Let's give K-Rod some love. How about it, Tim? I mean, considering some of the other people who Mets fans don't generally look back on with fondness uh, that we have given them episode names, uh, I'm okay with Francisco Rodriguez, who, when the Mets signed him, seemed like the right person to sign after that 2008 season. Basically, the rule is, unless you're Jesse Orozco and you're a reliever, or Tug McGraw, or maybe John Franco, and even he's borderline at times, uh, a reliever... It, it, it's a risk. It, it's not going to be a fan favorite, right? Maybe Turk Wendell. I mean, it's a, it's a very short list of Mets relievers that we're okay with. If you have blown a save for the New York <laughs> Mets, I don't know that we can name an episode after That's you. It. It's all over from there. Uh, so, okay, so this will be the Francisco Rodriguez episode. Uh, real quick, and then we'll start looking ahead. It's a positive news, uh, big picture as to whether or not we will have baseball in 2020. But uh, as we talked about last episode, we had on David Wright, and we just kind of ended the episode with the interview. I, I thought a, a couple of interesting takeaways from David Wright, maybe unsurprisingly, uh, talking about, hey, there are consequences for your actions when – it comes to Carlos Beltran, and he has been outspoken and was outspoken throughout his career about guys that were caught using performance-enhancing drugs. So I suppose you know some consistency on that, even if it is a, a teammate that David has a lot of respect for at Carlos Beltran and is thankful for the help that uh, Beltran offered early on in David's career. Yeah, I mean, David's always been such a diplomatic player that he's able to to toe that line between actually saying something and saying it in a nice way to to kind of uh, couch all that with with how much Beltron had helped him earlier in his career, but also that you know there wasn't a lot of uh, he didn't feel so bad for for Carlos getting in this situation. He called it unfortunate, but kind of you know that it was basically earned that Carlos played the role that that everyone said he played in that uh, the sign stealing scandal. And and when you do something like that, you you gotta deal with the consequences and and the consequences in this case were Beltron losing his job and not getting a chance to be uh the great manager that that David thought that he had a, had the chance to be and maybe the other part of it uh, another teammate throughout David's time with the Mets Matt Harvey and you know David uh, you know says he's rooting for Matt and, and wants to see him get back out there and basically he's thankful to Matt Harvey for what Harvey did in blowing past the innings limits in 2015 and that he was the guy they wanted out in that spot, ninth inning, game five of a, of a World Series. Yeah, I mean, I mean you think about, uh, and, and we can debate for years how much Harvey's uh, innings total in 2015 eventually uh, harmed his career going forward with the thoracic outlet syndrome the next year in the same way that like Johan Santana's no hitter uh, lingers the same way in Mets history in this past decade. Uh, but in, in the way that Wright said that day, uh, they don't get to the World Series without Matt Harvey. Uh, and it's, you know, you forget kind of the, the role he played uh, in game one of the NLCS, uh, how well he pitched in that game and really set the tone for that series sweep over Chicago. I mean, the, the role he played down the stretch that September when they pulled away from the Nationals uh, in the NL East. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, the game five start that they could not reward uh, in the World Series. And the, there are so many 
what ifs about that season and we, and we generally think of them in a negative way uh but another one is like what if matt harvey had had put his foot down and said i'm, I'm not mm. pitching past my innings limit uh it's it's very interesting to think about what the mets would have looked like in the postseason with bartolo cologne in the rotation uh, or john niece in the rotation rather than matt harvey you know and i thought it's interesting too with right when he was talking about 2015 and i asked him was that more painful because of where you were at that point in your career where I mean, it's likely your last shot to get a championship, as it turned out it was for David Wright. And I mean, he still said 2006, uh, and Yadier Molina, and you know the opportunities missed, I'm sure, in, in the regular seasons to follow in 07 and 08. But, uh, you know, he kind of, I think, felt it the same way that a fan did, even as he had different parts of his career uh, in 15 versus when he was a kid in 06, 7, 8. Well, yeah, you look at that 06 team, and the thing is, they lost to a team that they finished, what, third, 12 and a half games better than in the regular season? You know, you went into that as a, a me at the time as a Mets fan, thinking there's there's no way the Cardinals are going to beat this team in a seven-game series. I, I had been more afraid of the Padres uh, getting to the NLCS because of Jake Peavy and Chris Young. And so, the, the you know, the only thing that gave me solace at the time of the Mets losing Game 7 in that series was that you know because of the injuries to in that starting rotation because you were down El Duque Pedro and then the very good Steve Traxel uh, down for the World Series uh, that you know that the the Tigers would probably roll over them the way the Tigers had played in the American League and then I didn't watch much of that World Series because it was too difficult uh, but you read you read about what happened in that World Series and how poorly Detroit played and that just kind of ha- had to hammer home for for David and other guys in that Mets team. Man, if we had gotten there, we'd probably win that thing. You know, 2015, uh, I don't think anyone thought, even going into the postseason, that the Mets were the best team in the National League. They had the fifth best record uh, in the league. They got kind of fortunate. They only had to beat the third and fourth best records to get there, and they had home field against Chicago the way things broke. Uh, But, you know, there was kind of a more unexpected sense of that. Whereas in 06, you know, but from mid-May on, it was basically like World Series, here we come. Yeah. Uh, and, and to have that taken away uh, in the ninth inning of Game 7 uh, is, is, is really hard. 2015 was house money. I and mean, they were dead in the water in late July. And then all of a sudden, that one magical week where they promote Conforto, Kelly Johnson, Juan Uribe. I think Murphy came off the disabled list and... Obviously, he took off like a shot after that, acquiring Yoannis Cespedes, and boom, boom, boom. And then all of a sudden, that team just absolutely took off. But uh, it, for the entire 30-minute interview, go back last episode, and uh, you could hear some thoughts from David Wright. If he feels he has closure in his career, he talked about the ownership situation and uh, his role in the front office. So uh, certainly a, a lot there if you haven't heard it yet. And shots Getting at to, the cookie club. Shots at the cookie oh, club. Oh, well, yes. Big time shots. He has some issues with the uh, the old cookie club there. So you can hear that as well. Uh, but there is baseball news of sorts. It's kind of no news, but we're moving towards having a 2020 season, Tim. And it seems there will be baseball in some capacity. It might be as much as, say, 120 game season. It might be as little as some kind of tournament that would take place over a a couple of months, but certainly some more optimism as areas of the country open up as the 
cases of coronavirus begin to to level off nationally. They certainly already have in New York City. Uh, But a little more optimism finally here that, hey, there's a way to make this work. Yeah, I I would say this is maybe the first day in a little while that my 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 sense of optimism for there being a season like like the odds in my mind of there being a season have improved uh for the first time in a while uh you know for the last few weeks have kind of been resigned to the idea that we probably won't have a season uh and now i'm starting to think that it, no it, it is it is probably more more possible than not uh you know jeff Passan at espn kind of breaking down where the game is now you know rob manfred has said like we are very confident we're going to have a season uh we've started to see uh teams commit to paying uh, they're, they're non-uniform personnel, so we're talking about people in, in baseball operations and scouts and, and, and those kinds of parts of the organization uh, for longer periods of time. The Mets uh, worked, you know, we, we reported at The Athletic uh, on Monday that the Mets are going to pay those employees throughout the year. Uh, they, they've committed to paying them all year, but that, that there will be a reduction in salary even if there is a season. So it's kind of there's the security. If there is no season, you still get paid for, for all year, uh, but there is a reduction. I don't, I don't know exactly how big that is, whether you make you know, 80% of what you're supposed to make or some other percentage. Uh, so I think that, to me, signals confidence from the Mets side of things that, that they feel pretty good about there being a season, their, their willingness to commit uh, that way financially at this point, uh, maybe save a couple dollars in the, in the instance of if there is a season. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, there's a lot of different things to figure out, whether it starts uh, kind of normally just without fans with teams playing in their home ballparks or whether we have uh, a hub set up with uh, not it's just be Phoenix. A hub. I, but I maybe, can't imagine you yeah. could travel. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's probably, uh, you know, if we're starting in July, it's probably a little too soon to be traveling much. But uh, you've got teams in, in Phoenix, Dallas, Tampa, maybe a couple of other spots, as, you know, as many as six hubs. If you could have each division at a hub, uh, that, that probably, although five, five teams per hub is not particularly helpful, I guess. You need an even number. Um, so if you, if you break it up that way, uh, then maybe it becomes a little bit more palatable and and you're able to to fit in as a lot of games if you're not traveling if you're just sticking in the same area and just driving an hour to a game or something like that uh it's a bit easier to to cram as many games in as possible in in july august september uh into october and maybe a a playoffs in november i mean hey put the mets and the yankees in the same hub right and and see what happens well yeah i mean if you do if you do that kind of system you have to assume there'd be a universal dh right uh, and that would that would be interesting logistically from the the Mets perspective. Uh, and, and you know, I've always thought that the DH kind of uh, favored American League teams because look, you know, when I when I covered the Red Sox and David Ortiz became a free agent, uh, no National League team was going to sign that guy <laughs> to be a pinch hitter. Uh, whereas uh, American League teams could afford him. So when you got to a situation where there were games with a DH, a team was built for those games and a team wasn't. Uh, so I think if, if you have a system like that where you have a universal DH and the Mets are mixed in with American League teams that are prepared for that, I do think it, it puts them at a slight disadvantage there. Although the Mets probably more built for that than any other National League team I was going to say, seen. and this is their dream, right? Now Yohannes Cespedes can DH. Uh, J.D. Davis doesn't necessarily have to have a position every single game. I, I mean, this would be a huge boon to the Mets. You could mix in Dom Smith and Pete Alonso in the same lineup. I mean, they have a number of different things that they would a- be able to do 
Uh, this would not be a disadvantage for the Mets in any way, shape, or form. I mean, they'd probably want three or four DHs if possible. <laughs> uh, it, it would be. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't think they would stick with a set DH unless Cespedes really came along mm-hmm. uh, and was a guy that you, that could that could bat in your lineup every day. But like you said, you know, you could. Davis and, and Dom Smith could get into the lineup. Smith at first base with Alonzo DHing, Davis DHing. You know, it probably means more playing time for a guy like Jake Marisnik in the outfield. Uh, maybe you, you mix, mix it up a little bit uh, on the infield, give Cano some DH days, uh, you know, depending on what Jed Lowry is able to give you if and when he comes back. So they're, the Mets have like eight or, eight or nine potential designated hitters on their roster. Uh, it just, when you employ guys that way, it might leave you short in the field. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think uh, it'll be a good thing because the Mets, you know, they, they got to force these guys on the field as it is without the DH. So uh, it's one less spot that you, you have to worry about it as far as that goes. And they'd be in a, a pretty good position as far as that goes. And you would think, too, you know, with this condensed schedule, you know, a DH is kind of a day off for guys, right? So it would make some sense, get some guys off their feet if they're playing, let's say, a doubleheader once a week, or there aren't a lot of built-in days off over the course of the year, depending on how many games they're looking to get in. And then, of course, pitching-wise for the Mets, I mean, this would be where Noah Syndergaard would be such a key blow, where they wouldn't have the same depth in the rotation as they were hoping to have going into this year. Yeah, I mean, we were talking with the, the Syndergaard, when the Syndergaard injury happened, just how beneficial it would be to have the six major league starters that the Mets brought with them to spring training, all healthy, going into a, a condensed schedule where you might be playing eight games in a week. Uh, you might have some regularly scheduled doubleheaders. Um, and and you know, look, we're, we're projecting, we don't know that that's going to be the case uh, if they do come back, but uh, having a situation where you could start those six guys and, and feel pretty good about your starter every single game uh, is certainly an advantage to where they would be now, where you're, you're looking more at the Steven Gonsalves, David Peterson, Walker Lockett, Corey Oswaltz stepping up and having to start games for you. Uh, and just, you know, the Mets last year uh, got so much out of their starting staff in terms of health, 154 starts out of their, their top five guys. Uh, they only had to dip into that depth eight times. And I think regardless of how many how many games this season is scheduled out to be, they're, they're probably going to have to dip into that more than eight times, uh, even if it's a shorter season. Technically, they already are, right? Because you, you can right. knock you know, out Syndergaard theoretically mm-hmm. right, off the, right off the top, which uh, wasn't the case last year for this Mets team. So, you know, at the very least, some optimism that maybe there will be a safe way to have a baseball season, a way to figure it out. But it seems Major League Baseball very confident that there will be baseball in 2020 in what way, shape, or form, hubs, divisions, how it would be all set up, uh, the payment for the players, all of that would still need to be sorted out. But I, I think there's still time uh, for all of that to come to fruition here over the coming weeks, months, whatever it might be. But uh, at least you could feel like, all right, you're not waiting until April 2021 uh, to see a a baseball game. Um, And let's hope that if when the Mets baseball to start this off, they they fare better than Tim Britton's virtual team that's being played out in the athletic universe. 23 and 32, Tim. Uh, you're one of the worst offenses in baseball. What are you doing to the Mets here? You know, I'm a I'm a roll the ball out, let them play kind of general manager, which is really backfiring on, on me. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I did all these simulations that were playing it on out of the park baseball. I did all these simulations with the Mets team already without the GM making any moves, really. 
Uh, and the, the offense, it just, it really does not believe in the Mets' offensive capabilities. Uh, it doesn't think J.D. Davis is legit. He's he's a sub, sub-replacement sub player uh, at least half the time when you do this, and he is uh, in the, the athletic alternate universe for me. Uh, Ahmed Rosario started the year 5 for 56, just recently got over 200. We're in late May in this season. Wilson Ramos is hitting 200. Uh, Cano isn't hitting well. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, Dom- Are you blaming the game? Yes, I am blaming the game completely. It's ridiculous, Pete. This this doesn't fall on me. This is the this is uh it's like when you play your older brother in uh Ken Griffey Jr. baseball for N64 uh, and he makes all the plays and they're the, the close calls that the umpire gives him that the computer knows it's you and it's rigging it in your favor are, is a sentence that every member of my family has said to another one at some point. Well, you know, what? it sounds like games. you're just lazy, Tim. It sounds like you're not doing anything to, to help this team, to help the charge. This is what I have is watching the Mets through this league and you are disappointing me at, at this time. Yeah, so all of us. T- you're letting everybody who listens to this podcast <laughs> down, Tim. This isn't helping my my resume. Uh, we we've benched JD Davis. He's not playing anymore. Uh, well, God, Smith you gotta you gotta adjust to the league here, Tim. Uh, we we just we brought Rene Rivera up. He's he's starting every other day now with Ramos. Ramos hit three home runs in a game last week, and we still lost. <laughs> um, uh, we've got sounds Jorge right, Mate- actually. <laughs> Jorge Mateo, who I traded for, uh, is get, is taking away some some shortstop reps from from Rosario because of how how much he's struggled. And I did bring up David Peterson to replace the injured Michael Waka mm. in the rotation. Peterson's been good for a couple of starts. The rot- I'm like I've got the second best pitching staff in the National League. They just can't score, and that's that's not the uh, that's not the problem that I think the Mets were expecting coming into this season. Like, if, well, that's if why we it's are... a you problem, Tim. Because right. it can't it's, be the Mets' fault. No, it's that's, your it's fault. An, it's an it's an execution of the algorithm problem, as as so many things in baseball these you days. You know, Eno Saris tried uh, to give you some advice a few episodes back, and instead, you know, only he's... the Giants and Tigers have scored less runs than you. Eno's running the Reds in this league. He is also nine games under 500, so we're both in the same spot. Uh, I did inquire as to the availability of Buster Posey in a trade. I don't think that's a good idea for either side, though, so uh, probably not going to happen. Uh, but, you know, look into different different things and, and how to make this team better. We've got the good oh, news great. is— you, you investigated one move that you think is bad for both teams. <laughs> I mean, executive of the year, you are not Tim Britton. You know, teams aren't as aggressive in May, Pete. Don't you know GM Patter at this point? You've mm. got to wait until June and July to really get going. Well, they're um, going to be 30 games under 500, and, uh, <laughs> you know, this is this is what you're doing. You're just destroying all of this. We're, for, we're for barely ahead. We wait for real baseball and only have you to depend on. We're barely ahead of the Marlins. Uh, it's a disaster. It is a disaster. It is a disaster. Um, it is uniform week at the Athletic. Maybe this is something that is more your speed talking about fashion rather than <laughs> trying to put together a fashionable baseball team. Uh, we we kind of agree on this, so maybe uh, it's not worth going too in-depth on, but the road grays for the Mets that they currently wear uh, that you wrote, they've gone back to three times over the course of their history. That's my favorite Mets jersey do you have a do you have a hot take a controversial opinion on Mets uniforms overall uh I I mean my controversial it's not even controversial I think the blacks should come back but not a lot (laughs) like I would be cool because this is 2020 it's 20th anniversary of the, the 2000 pennant team like bring the black jerseys back for uh a weekend series 
uh, here and there against like maybe one like the, day a year. It doesn't need yeah, to be, you much. know. Yeah, like I mean, I, I think you know, a couple of years ago they brought back the '86 uniforms for occasional wear, and it gets to be too often over the mm. course of a season when you're wearing it like eight to ten times. I think you keep it to a handful of games, like three or four a year, and it, it feels more special because of that. Uh, I think that's the way to do something like that. You know, I'm I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of okay on the pinstripes. I don't love the pinstripe jerseys uh, the way a lot of Mets fans do. I think the the plain whites that they wore at home were really nice too. Uh, the so snow I, I mean, whites. You can go, yeah, you can go either way with with the home jersey. Uh, I I did not like uh, the road jerseys they wore when they had Mets on it, when they had New York in block font, when they had New York mm. in script. Uh, the the font they have on their current road jerseys is the only font that's ever worked on their road jerseys, and they should stick with that. All the uniforms in the '80s were atrocious. Can we just put it that way? The racing <laughs> like every stripe team. is ugly as sin. <laughs> now, I will say, when it came back for one day to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the '16, that was fun for one day weekend. However long they wore those jerseys, no problem with it. But they are ugly the racing stripe is hideous i would never want to wear a meds jersey on my own that has the racing stripe on it those are i don't care if the mets won with them and i know we'll have listeners who grew up with those jerseys and and have a soft spot for them if the mets hadn't won a world series while wearing the racing stripe nobody would miss it it is ugly it's it's wild to me that they lasted until 1992 because I, I probably started watching them. I probably started watching the Mets like, you know, on a more regular basis in '93 when I was six years old. Uh, but so I, I didn't watch them in the racing stripe growing up. Uh, but it just seems like yeah, they wore those in the mid '80s and they had to be done with them by like '88, right? '89 at, at the at the least. But no, they, they, those were still. I was watching someone. Someone had posted a clip of, of Bobby Bonilla in the '93 home run derby, uh, and so I was watching a little bit of that. Uh, and you see, like the picture of Bobby Bonilla is in the racing stripe jersey still in 1993. I'm like, I remember this home run derby. Hmm. They shouldn't have still been wearing that jersey anywhere near that time. No. That's why. That's why they were bad for as long as they were. It was. It was the fashion. It it it, it, <laughs> it dripped through to their core for for many years afterwards. But uh, speaking of that '86 team, we are going to uh, delve into them with the author of the book about the 1986 Mets. Of course, the bad guys won. Jeff Perlman will be on with us on Friday's podcast. So we look forward to that. And I think we're all feeling nostalgic as we've talked about a little bit here, right? I'm watching the the Michael Jordan documentary uh, on ESPN. And, boy, if they ever did a documentary about the 86 Mets, I mean, that would be out of this world if they were able to figure it out. Probably don't have the behind-the-scenes footage where it'd be unique, but anything more on that team, one of the more interesting teams. And I don't think I say that just as a, a biased Mets fan, but... Uh, one of the real interesting champion teams over the last you know, 40, 50 years of baseball in, in any of the major sports. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll have some of those stories for you coming up next time. It'll be our 76th episode of the Metrospective, Tim, a number that has never been worn in the history of the New York Mets. Uh, 1976, not a banner season, 86 wins. It was the last winning season for the Mets until 1984. Uh, one other time, 76 seems to pop up in Mets history. Tom Seaver had 76 wins above replacement on baseball reference in his time with the Mets. We've done a lot of Seaver episodes. I don't know. Where do you want to go with this? I mean, 
first of all, if we did do a documentary on the 86 Mets, there's no ESPN2 broadcast with it without profanity. You've got to go full full board. With, with it's like watching Major League on TBS. Like you can't do it. You <laughs> right. ruin the whole yeah. thing. It, it, yes, it would. <laughs> it would need to be, uh, you know, profanity laced, which I, I, hasn't been a problem with the Michael Jordan documentary. So I think we can get a little bit of that. Right. Uh, the, the 76 Mets, you know, to me, as we talked about uniforms, the 76 Mets stand out because they wore that pillbox cap a couple times. Uh, and, and I think that was because it was the uh, centennial of the National League. Uh, but, you know, a guy that's, that's kind of an underrated Met, a guy we don't talk a lot about because he, he wasn't on very good teams, but was pretty good for the Mets for a while. Uh, had a really nice year in 1976. And that's John Milner, hmm. uh, who, who OPS plus 137 that season. Uh, Dave Kingman did hit 37 home runs for that team, but Milner was still the better player. Uh, so, what Kingman uh, bat? 204. <laughs> let me see here. He hit uh, 238, one of his better wow. years. Uh, okay. I was, I was. Whenever I think of Dave Kingman, I think of uh, Roger Angel writing about the, watching Dave Kingman in spring training, and it, he says something like, "You know, Kingman hit a a towering blast in the top of the seventh, and then slid and misplayed a, a routine fly ball into an inside the park homer in the bottom of the seventh. A preview of all the adventures to come at Shea this summer." Uh, hmm. He'd fit right in with baseball today, wouldn't he? Oh yeah, I mean, like you think of Kingman and and Rob Deere and and those guys uh, from that era uh, of real home run bashers. Uh, so let, let's go with John Milner, uh, a guy who, who doesn't get his, his due credit as a very good Met uh, for some not very good teams. All right. The uh, Milner episode coming up. Jeff Perlman will be on with us uh, and Tim Britton. The, the Frankie Rodriguez episode in the books here. And uh, we appreciate it, Tim. Adios, Pete. <laughs>